0: right today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. I was driving down the street recently and noticed a bumper sticker on the car in front of me. It said, we all do better when we all do better. That quote was made famous by the late progressive Minnesota Senator Paul Wellstone, and it seems like an especially pertinent idea for today's show. There has been so much in the news recently about inequality and the ways it defines and hinders the lives of so many Americans. But why and how did things get so out of balance? How come so many Americans are struggling just to make ends meet? while the people at the top of the economic scale, the uber-rich, seem just to be getting wealthier. It seems like there should be enough to go around, but so often many of us are just scraping by. And while the pandemic has laid bare many of the structures that perpetuate and exacerbate this economic and social inequality, President Biden's recently unveiled American Rescue Plan could mark a really important shift in how we talk about and address poverty in America. We all do better when we all do better. Do we really believe that in America? And if that's true, how come more policy doesn't reflect that as the overall goal? Why do we see things not moving in that direction? I'm joined this hour by someone who thinks a lot about economic inequality, about wealth distribution, and the role of race and history in our nation's social welfare. Heather McGee is an American political commentator. She is a political strategist and author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Heather McGee, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good to be with (laughs) you, Stephen. Yes. Uh, So as I said, you have been with us before on Detroit Today. We had you on the show last June. And so much has happened since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, we began that conversation last year by asking you about your thoughts on the connection between the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement and calls for the end to police brutality and systemic racism. How do you think that conversation has evolved since last June?
1: You know, I think it is a massive reason, a massive part of the story. Of what happened in November uh, with Biden and Harris uh, winning the election. Uh, it's a massive part of what happened on January 5th when something I would not <laughs> have thought could have happened, which is that a uh, a multiracial coalition came together to put two Democrats in the U.S. Senate from Georgia giving mm-hmm the Democrats' control of the Congress so that we could pass a massive American rescue plan um, without any Republican votes that is going to do such things as cut child poverty in half, uh, refund our public schools, our counties, and states to make sure that we have the resources to help our people in this time of crisis, offer survival checks, uh, to virtually every American, extend unemployment insurance benefits and uh, support for essential workers. And that's just the down payment, right? We, we know that the administration has recently teased that it wants to do $3 trillion more to do what it's called build back better. And it's under four, four guiding principles addressing inequality, climate change, uh, and racial justice is one of those four. And so you know, it's it's the movement helped power people to wade through high water, Stephen, to, to vote, right? I mean, we had uh, voting rules that were not optimal in, in most states in the country. We had a pandemic. Um, we had people fearing for their lives. And yet we had record high turnout because people recognize that what they do on election day matters. It can change the course of history. It can make their family is able to prosper and thrive or not. And so racial justice was the way to win, uh, actually, the kind of uh, economic supports that all of our families need. And that's really what I talk about in my book, is that when we we recognize that we have so much more in common than that divide us, and when we pursue fairness and justice for some of us, it makes society better for all of us.
0: Mm. So... Georgia is, I think, a great sort of jumping-off point to mm. to talk about uh, this because, as you point out, January 5th was a remarkable day in America because of what happened uh, in Georgia with these runoff uh, Senate races. But yesterday in Georgia, we saw the Mm. state legislature and the governor take a real swipe at uh, yeah. at that progress and try to make it harder for many of the people who did show up to vote uh, on January 5th to 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 vote in the next elections there. And and so if we go back to this idea that we all do better when we all do better. I I I I always just pause and think do we really believe that? Mm-hmm. Is that really the way things play out in this country. It seems like when some of us do better, others of us feel threatened and take, take actions to make sure that, uh, that that doesn't continue.
1: That's exactly right, Stephen. So I wrote the some of us uh, in order to try to answer the question, why can't Americans seem to have nice things? And by nice things, I don't mean, self-driving cars, which, frankly, I don't think we need, Mm -hmm. or, you know, laundry that does itself. I mean, things like reliable infrastructure, um, you know, pipes without lead. Um, I mean, a well-funded school in every neighborhood. I mean, a reasonable and, and fitting response to the big challenges we face, like climate change. I mean, Universal health care, a public health system that could have avoided the United States, the United States having the worst in the developed world response to the pandemic. I, I, I mean the kinds of things that impact black and brown people disproportionately, right? wages that can't keep workers out of poverty, but I also mean the way that all of us seem to suffer from a a country that is seeming more and more dysfunctional and unequal by the day. Mm. And when I set out on this journey to write The Sum of Us, the first big insight that set me on my path was the identification of exactly what you say, that when we all do better, when we all do better, is actually not the big story that many Americans hold. The the big story that many Americans hold is actually this zero-sum game, Mm -hmm. this idea that there are only so many points on the board and that if I score one, that means you can't score one. A dollar more in my pocket must mean a dollar less in yours. And put in racial terms, as it is understood in the United States, this is an idea that is held much more often by white Americans And it's the idea that progress or people of color has to come at white folks' expense. Now, that's not something that black and brown people believe. We don't believe our progress has to come at white folks' expense. We are more in the we all do better when we all do better camp. Mm. And yet this zero-sum story, which is a lie, has been sold to white America by people who profit from us being divided, by people who profit from white Americans' shearing the destruction of public goods and public investments that could help them just because it might also help the people they think are on the other team. Hmm. Hmm.
0: And, and part of me also though, wants to say that if you take the whole narrative of America from the beginning to now and measure again, kind of the arc of progress
2: Mm-hmm. That
0: we are moving, we are moving in the right direction, we're moving too slowly, we move in fits and starts. there are massive setbacks at times that 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 destroy progress, but January fifth and frankly uh, November third last year, where uh, Kamala Harris became. Uh, the first African American uh, and Asian American um, woman and to be woman. <laughs> vice vice president. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know these are these are these are markers that can't really be erased, right? They they they, they stand as achievements uh, toward that goal, no matter how much pushback they That's they right. inspire. That that these 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 laws they passed in Georgia yesterday, for instance, are going to make it harder for a lot of people to vote, but it won't stop the, the, the sort of march toward larger participation in the in the democracy by African-Americans who, you know, have been locked out of it for for so much of our of our history.
1: Well, yes and no, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, um, yes, all told, Stephen, you are right, you know, Uh, As Dr. King made famous, the the arc of the moral universe is long, but it Mm -hmm. bends towards justice. But it bends towards justice because our hands are on it, bending it towards justice. And I will say that I was absolutely, you know, in the month of January, I took January 5th as a more enduring sign of our progress, Uh, the multiracial coalition that changed history that put this country on a course to be able to deal with some of the basic problems that we have, as opposed to continuing to keep us mired in corruption and incompetence. That was huge. Mm -hmm. And then January 6th happened. And a white supremacist riot fed by a big lie about election fraud in places like Detroit, a lie that is, is only... Common sense, if you have this stereotype that of course people of color are more likely to be criminal, and of course a multiracial coalition of voters could not be more legitimate than a white coalition of voters who voted for Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump won the majority of the white vote, Joe Biden won the majority of everybody else, a multiracial coalition. That lie caused the death. a number of people, including a police officer, Mm -hmm. when we were supposed to be hearing from the same crew that blue lives matter. And then that lie has been voted on by the majority of the Republicans in Congress who voted to decertify uh, an election that had zero fraud. In fact, the only fraud we've been able to find from the past couple of elections that was of any significant scale has been perpetuated by Republicans. Mm -hmm. And then that lie was used to, as the logic for 250 bills to make it harder for Americans to vote. Listen, black, white, and brown. We talk about this as a civil rights issue because it's clear that Republicans don't want black people to vote because they vote for for Democrats. But, you know, when we at Demos, my former organization, took a voting rights case to the Supreme Court in Ohio about Purging voters for just not voting for two election cycles, you know, making disappearing them from the voter rolls. Our named plaintiff was a white, middle aged uh, Navy veteran, right? Mm-hmm. If you make it harder for people to exercise their constitutional right of self governance, if you put up all these barriers, you're not only going to sweep Black people into the Democratic margins, you're going to make it harder for many of your people. When there was a poll tax in the American South, the the rates of of voting across all races were abysmally low. You basically had what they want, which is a muted voice of the people so that the hands of of government can be tied and in the control of the white, wealthy elite. And that's really what I talk about in The Sum of Us, the fact that who, who benefits when working in middle class people of all races? Don't have their voice heard in Washington. It's the big corporations, it's the corrupt politicians and the people that 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 pay them, it's the lobbyists, it's the people who want the economic and political status quo, who want a society where 1% of the population owns more wealth than the entire middle class, and 40% of adult workers can't aren't paid enough to make meet and make ends meet. Hmm. Hmm. That's what they want and that's what they get with this voter suppression.
0: Right, right. Um, and, and, you know, uh, moving the needle with the, the people who are also victims of that paradigm but who support it because they fear that really they might be more likely to be victims of black progress or uh, the eradication of poverty is is the – I mean that's the uh, that's the kind of central tension uh, mm-hmm. in our in our national narrative. How do you convince them that um, that again, when we all do better, we all do better?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do with the some of us. Um, you know, the subtitle is "What Racism Costs Everyone" yeah. and how we can prosper together. And the core idea at the heart of it is that. Society rests on a web of mutuality. There are things that we have to do together that we simply can't do alone, and that throughout our history, uh, leaders in both parties recognize this. I can't make my own electric grid. I can't make my own vaccine and distribute it to the people. Right? You know this this idea that we have this go it alone system, this this dependence on the quote unquote market, which just really means you know, us turning to the people who have the most in the private market, meaning, you know, us relying on wealthy people and the current distribution of wealth as it is, is, is a lie. That's never been the way that our country has thrived. It's never been the way to prosperity. In the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, we had a social contract mm-hmm. where government, labor, and business agreed that the point Of all of this was to ensure that our people have a higher and higher standard of living. And that created the greatest middle class the world had ever seen. And yet, it was through smart public investments and public protections that really began in the wake of the Great Depression and the Gilded Age in the 1930s with the New Deal. And it included massive subsidies of home ownership, it included strict protections around labor, the enforcement of labor laws to make sure that people could join a union. It included things like the G.I. Bill of 1944, Mm -hmm. which made college college degrees and home ownership uh, available virtually for free uh, to millions of people. And yet all of that that I just described was either by explicit racial designation or by impact because of existing segregation for whites only. And that's how... In the 1950s and 60s, we had a thriving white middle class and Black people knocking on the door saying, hey, I want to be a part of that social contract, too. I want to see that American dream. And when they did, Stephen, this is what happened. It's the story at the heart of my book. It's it's what happened to public pools. And I use the swimming pools as a story mm-hmm. and a metaphor, as an example of that big public protection and investment, the sense of public goods that thrived to help create a a great middle class, and yet was often segregated and for whites only. And in the late 1950s, Black families said, hey, it's our tax dollars that are funding those public pools. We want our children to swim too. And what happened across the the country? They closed the (laughs) down pools. They drained the pools. That's exactly right. They drained the public swimming pools rather than integrate them. And so what did that mean? It meant that white families lost out too. It meant the community itself, the thing that was sort of the beating heart, the town center was gutted. Uh, I travel in my book across the country. I take a number of stops in Montgomery, Alabama, where their public park system, they closed it for 10 years Hmm. rather than integrate it. They sold off the animals in the zoo, Stephen. And so so that's why, I mean, I laugh because of the absurdity. And yet, of course, it's not just about pools and parks. It's about roads and bridges and water systems. It's about the minimum wage being high enough to feed a family. It's about funding our public schools. It's about the infrastructure not only that we haven't maintained since the 50s, but that we haven't built, including the soft human infrastructure like universal childcare and paid family leave. And the fact that we have made college, which used to be free when it was mostly white folks going, into something that you have to go far into debt for because we've drained the public pool of funding for our state colleges and moved from grants to loans. This is the story of American inequality, and you can't tell it without the central character of racism.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Heather McGee. We want to get you involved in the conversation, too. Let's get going on the phones. Call and tell us what you think uh, there is to be hopeful about now in terms of dealing with poverty and inequality now that there is a Joe Biden administration rather than a Donald Trump administration, Uh, what kinds of policies by the government or by your employer would create more stability in your life? And how do you see racism and social policy playing out in your life and in your community in policing, policies around voter suppression, other areas of American life? 313 577 1019 is always the number here on the phones. You can go to Facebook or Twitter. We'll include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and I'm glad you've joined us. My guest this hour is Heather McGee. She's an American political commentator, political strategist and author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. We're talking about that tension in our culture, not just around the systemic inequality that has existed since the beginning here, but the idea that the way to fight against it is to lift everyone up, that uh, that holding anyone back ends up holding us all back. It's a difficult concept to see in action in so many places uh, in America, but it is the path forward. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Let us know how hopeful you feel that perhaps the Biden administration now in its early months uh, of authority in in Washington uh, is thinking about and addressing poverty and inequality. How different uh, do you expect the results to be? Uh, Are you someone who's living in poverty here in Southeast Michigan? What kinds of policies by the government or by your employer do you think would create more stability in your life and in your community? And how do you see racism and social policy playing out in your life and in your community? As always, uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313 1019 You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you in the show that way. Adam on Twitter says uh, capitalism means there are inherently haves and have nots. Ethically, that implies the haves have a responsibility to care for and about those with less. This is lost in modern America, attacking our problems as one clearly will benefit us all. Michael on Twitter says uh, great discussion. Seems like poor white people have been conditioned to blame immigrants and black people for not having access to prosperity. What message does Heather have for poor white people? Heather, I think that's a really interesting question, and, and, and I will make it more specific. I, we like to talk about change, actual change on this, on this program, and that means action. That means doing something affirmatively different than what you do now. So mm-hmm. what is it that individuals can do? Uh, who are part of this dynamic that uh, that perpetuates inequality out of fear that somebody else might get more uh, than you have how How do you as an individual uh, behave differently um, in that in that regard?
1: Well, let me answer you by telling you a story from the some of us. I, as I said, I was traveling across the country. I took a bunch of different trips over the three years to write the book. And um, a group in Kansas City is organizing fast food workers, people who make the minimum wage, um, with no raise for decades. In fact, uh, other than you know, whenever we, <laughs> when we in Washington decide to, to raise the minimum wage, um, and I talked with a young woman there named Bridget Hughes, and slight red hair and slight tint of red in her hair, uh, of Irish descent. She's married with three kids. Her husband also works at a minimum wage job, and she told me the story of when she was first approached by a coworker at Wendy's saying, hey, I'm going to this meeting um, and it's about uh, the, the fight for $15. And she said, uh-uh, <laughs> there is no way <laughs> that they're ever going to pay someone like us $15 an hour. No way. And yet she went. She went to that first meeting. She went to that meeting and a Latina woman stood up and described her life. She described uh, having three kids in a two-bedroom apartment with plumbing issues and how she felt trapped in a life where things were never going to get better. And Bridget said to me, I saw myself in her. Now, why was that so important? Hmm. Because Bridget, as a white, working-class woman in America, had been sold that zero-sum lie that we talked about earlier. She said, in her own words, she said, you know, I believed the stuff about immigrants coming over and stealing our jobs and not paying taxes and committing crimes. I believed the stuff about black folks just wanting to to cheat their way to get ahead and 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 you know committing crimes. And 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 I realized once I joined in with what her organization is called Stand Up KC. It's a it's a minimum wage fast food worker organization in Kansas City. She said, once I joined in and I started organizing with those same people, I realized it's not about us versus them. Mm. In in order for us to come up, they've got to come up, too. Because as long as we're divided, she told me, we're conquered. Now, that's what she said to me. (laughs) She said, basically, this is also about white folks learning that racism has a cost for us, too, because, as she says, it keeps us divided from our Black and brown brothers and sisters. So we need to understand that as white workers, we, too, need to stand up and fight against racism.
0: Mm.
1: Those are her words. So that's the promise, right? That's the kind of change that we can see. you know, I've I've done many different things to try to move the ball forward for our people in this country. All those who struggle, I've done research. I've drafted legislation. I've testified before Congress. You know, I've I've run a think tank, Demos. I have you know gone to law school. Um, but really, when it comes down to it, the people that I saw who had really transformed their own thinking, who had really gained a level of personal power that this light had come on in them that that nothing could put out those were the people who had rolled up their sleeves in organizing whether it was Bridget and her co-worker Terrence uh, a black man very similar story who's now a leader in the fight for 15 in a union or the workers that I met in Mississippi who were trying to organize a Nissan plant mm-hmm. um, dealing with the fact that you know that the foreign auto workers had set up shop in the South to avoid paying good union wages, right? This this fight that I'm sure your listeners knew about when UAW worked for 10 years to try to organize Nissan and failed by a few hundred votes. And when I went and I sat with those workers, it was so clear that it was about the racial divide. But I talked to black and white workers who said, we have got to organize white workers. They have got to be a part of the solution because when they think, if the Blacks are for it, I'm against it, which was a direct quote. If the Blacks are for it, I'm against it. If that's what they think about unions, that's why we have this loss of union power across the country. That's why we have the middle class on the ropes. Because white people really turn their backs on the formula that helped create the middle class. They turn their backs on the Democratic Party. Once the party of the New Deal became also the party of civil rights, the majority of white people stopped voting for Democrats for president. We have not had the majority of white folks vote for a Democrat since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. Right. right, We have not seen that. So that's really what this fight is about, to restore some of what this country used to be able to build for itself and secure for its people back when it was for whites only. It's time to, as we say, refill the pool of public goods for everyone.
0: Mm. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones to participate in the conversation. Let's go to Henning in Rochester. Henning, welcome to the show. Thank you. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I hope uh, I'm, I'm probably going to be a little bit of the devil's advocate here, and I'd like to point out that politically I'm so far that I, to the left that I might actually make uh, Bernie Sanders blush. But I think <laughs> you in... in 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 America, sometimes it frustrates me to see uh, us, so to say, on the left, splitting ourselves by talking about something that's ridiculously important, such as racism. But I think clearly the biggest divide in American society is between rich and poor. And I think by infighting, we weaken ourselves, and we basically do the, the Trump wing, the extreme right, uh, a gigantic favor by just uh, rolling around in the mud instead of of coming up with an amazingly strong unity that we could be. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so, Henning, I I, I want to dig just a little deeper into into uh-huh. your thinking here. So, are you saying that you think? race and racial inequality is kind of a distraction from the discussion about poverty?
2: It can be be used as a distraction. I'm not dismissing it as a distraction, obviously, because that would be incredibly stupid of me, because obviously it's not. But I think from where I sit, which is obviously in a position of, of a whole lot of white privilege because I'm a I'm a well-off white not well off but I'm doing fine mm-hmm. white middle-aged man so uh, a lot of people would say who are you to talk and of course I'm not uh, but but I'm just saying that mm-hmm. I think having lived here for 25 years what really really divides Americans is between it's between rich and poor
0: mm-hmm.
2: no matter your sexual orientation no matter your race not thereby not dismissing the discussion of racism, but I'm just saying I think we should take it in the opposite order because I think we miss out on a, on a great strength uh, that I think somebody like Bernie Sanders often finds in a crowd. He can talk to a crowd of 2,000 Trump voters, and after half an hour, they're all convinced that uh, they should actually be Bernie Sanders voters instead because it makes sense. It's rich and poor. The mm. rich have got all the power. The poor have got absolutely nothing. No matter their the color of their skin, their gender identity, or their sexual orientation. Wow! Wow! So I, mean, I, think I... Cheat, I think we cheat ourselves out of a out of out of a very very big victory by by not sticking together and instead dividing ourselves and and throwing mud at each other. I think I've been to a lot of Trump rallies because of my job as a reporter. Mm-hmm. And, and for the life of me, I can't understand why they think like they think, but I get the impression that sometimes, I mean, these a lot of these very poor white people stick their nose out of their door in the morning, and uh, the whole world tells them that they're awful, and they should be ashamed, Publicly apologize, and they're most likely racists. And then they say, now, by all means, come and work with us. That's not a, the beginning of a great friendship, as they would say in Casablanca.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Henning, I really, I really appreciate the call. Uh, and the perspective, Heather, react to what what Henning's saying.
1: Yeah, here. I'm so glad Henning that you called in um, because I think this is really the debate. Um, I think right now, you know, particularly in the past four years, uh, maybe in the past, really in the past, actually, I would say in the past six or seven years, since since Ferguson, since the Black Lives Matter movement took off, we've really seen this this line of reasoning. Um, which says it's that the fact that we're talking about race is what's making white folks more racist. Hmm. And um, I don't think that the data bears that out in the sense that, um, you know, the majority of white people have uh, voted for the Republican Party, have have been anti-government, been anti-collective solutions, have have really sort of believed the the lie about the zero sum. And the data shows that that's been the case ever since really the late 1970s, really turbocharging with Reagan, really crystallizing the, the anti-government, demonizing poor Black people, welfare queen, you know, political rhetoric. It, it's not that talking about racism has made white people and and particularly poor white folks Um, more resentful it's that the message from the white right-wing elite for three generations now Mm -hmm. has been government used to be on our side and then government became on the side of the black and brown people Mm. they're taking something from you and giving it to black and brown people pointing out the cruelty of police brutality is is not what has caused white Americans to believe in the zero sum. So, I, you know, I think that right now there's so much attention to racial justice that it's, um, it's easy to think, oh, well, that must be the problem. But this problem is much older, mm-hmm. right? This, this problem is much, much older uh, than, than the resurgence in the past seven years of a racial justice conversation, right? Yeah. Um, I will say that I understand why it feels as if the left in general or people who believe that everyone should have a decent life and that we all play a role collectively through the government and through labor unions, through our, our vehicles for collective action, right? How do we get together to, mm-hmm. to make things better? Um, that That we have a that there's a job to do to make our lives better and solve big problems, that general group, I don't always want to talk about left or right because, that, you know, that yeah. is not always accurate, right? We have so, there's so much more that unites us than what divides us. Um, however, and I'll just keep going, just to say mm-hmm. that I think that there's so much more that unites us than divides us. And absolutely, we should talk about class. We should talk about the divide between the rich and everybody else. But I will say that we did a a deep um, study to try to figure out whether or not you could just talk about class. You could just say it's the 1% versus the 99%. And if that message would be the Trump message, the Republican message of you know, it's about the immigrants and the rioters in the streets, right? The race-based scapegoating message. Can, can talking about class only beat talking about race? And the answer was no. Even with white union workers, who, who you would think are the most, you know, most mm-hmm. susceptible and, and embracing of the populist Bernie Sanders type message. Because the racial story is so deep in America, And that's where I think maybe you just, you know, it's it's so deep in America that if you don't speak to the racial story, you know, someone can go to a Bernie Sanders rally, get back in their truck, turn on talk radio. And that message will be more kind of at a gut level and a heart level makes sense because it's about who you are and people aspire to be rich. Right? Yes, <laughs> and that's part of the problem. So that's why what we discovered, and this was one of the insights that I try to carry forward in the book, mm-hmm. is that we have to talk about race. We have to give people a, a way to understand the things they see. Why this neighborhood looks poorer than that neighborhood, why it is that Black men are more likely to go to jail, what's going on with the underfunding of black schools. What's going on in Flint? You've got to give people a way to understand that. And yet you also have to realize who's doing it. It is a narrow white elite that is writing the rules to keep black and brown people down. And when the white folks side with that narrow white elite, they get held down too. That's the way it works.
0: Yeah. Okay. Heather McGee, American political commentator, political strategist and author, of the sum of us, what racism costs everyone, and how we can prosper together. It's always really great to talk with you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for the calls.
0: Yeah. That's going to do it for us this week. Before we go, I want to thank everybody who has contributed to our spring fundraiser here at WDET and really quickly make the point that not everybody is able. To support WDAET financially and that's okay that's why we really really count on those of you who can to help sustain all of this for those who can't it's a really important dynamic that is part of the fabric of our community here at WDET come back Monday when state senator from Detroit Stephanie Chang is going to join the show to talk about Asian American discrimination and new voter suppression bills in the state senate this is 1019 wdetfm detroit's public radio station your connection to news music and conversation we'll talk again on monday